In London, this is The Economist, with Tasting Menu, a mouth-watering collection of reporting and analysis from our coverage this week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and on our menu, the harsh environment for startups in the Middle East, China's bullet trains to nowhere, and why an Uber for kids might struggle to reach maturity. But first, lifelong learning was our cover line this week. Technological change threatens to disrupt a wide array of industries, and many workers may find themselves needing to retrain. That's possible, but the challenges are still daunting, as our cover leader explained. When education fails to keep pace with technology, the result is inequality. Without the skills to stay useful as innovations arrive, workers suffer, and if enough of them fall behind, society starts to fall apart. After the industrial revolution, another came in education too. With developments in AI and robotics, this needs to happen once again. This time, however, working lives are so lengthy and so fast-changing that simply cramming more schooling in at the start is not enough. People must be able to acquire new skills throughout their careers. The education market is indeed innovating. Providers from General Assembly to Plural Site are building businesses on the promise of boosting and rebooting careers. Massive open online courses or MOOCs have veered away from lectures on Plato or black holes in favour of courses that make their students more employable. But the current model risks exacerbating any educational inequalities. It is easier to learn later in life if you enjoy the classroom first time around. About eighty percent of the learners on Coursera already have degrees. Online learning requires some IT literacy, yet one in four adults in the OECD has no or limited experience of computers. So we urged policymakers to invest in the situation because education is a public good whose benefits spill over to all of society. Governments have a vital role to play, not just by spending more, but also by spending wisely. For our very own How to Spend It guide, pick up a copy of this week's issue, which includes a special report on lifelong learning and a briefing on the dramatic changes in the manufacturing industry. With the world's workers soon to be caught in a struggle to keep up with technological change, we press on to our China section, where an article reported on the bullet train tracks proliferating around the country. The government is hoping that they're laying routes to economic success, but that isn't always the case. Less than a decade ago, China had yet to connect any of its cities by bullet train. Today, it has twenty thousand kilometers—that's twelve thousand five hundred miles—of high-speed rail lines, more than the rest of the world combined. It is planning to lay another fifteen thousand kilometers by 2025. And as the tracks spread across the barren land, urban growth is sprouting alongside them. At regular intervals, almost wherever there are stations, even if seemingly in the middle of nowhere. Thickets of newly built offices and residential blocks rise from the ground. The scheme evokes a proven model of the past. China's planners hope these will be like the railway towns that sprouted at a slower pace in America and Britain in the 19th century. And indeed, the trains have been a boon in some areas. Surveys show that more than half of passengers on the busiest lines are generated traffic. That is, people making trips that they would not have made before. This is unquestionably good for the economy. 
but too many tracks can become a road to nowhere, as happened in the city of Suzhou in Anhu province. Its station is 45 kilometers from the city centre. The government thought it would spark development. It paved eight-lane roads to serve a vast industrial park. Investors built clothing, food and pharmaceutical factories. But all are closed, except for a paper mill. Undeterred, the government is building a commercial district on the other side of the station. Can't say it lacks determination. With China's train tracks expanding across swathes of open terrain, over in the Middle East, businesses are struggling in a corporate quagmire. Fledgling startups are popping up all over the region. But as an article in our Middle East and Africa section explained, some rather basic structural problems are holding them back. With an educated population, relatively liberal culture and large banking system, Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, seemed well-placed to become a hub for internet startups in the region. Just one small problem. Due to government mismanagement, the country has some of the slowest download speeds in the world. It's not just poor Wi-Fi. The Middle East has seen a boom in startups trying to emulate the success of Europe and America, but the climate is far harsher. To understand what startups in the region are up against, consider that most of them will fail. That is true throughout the world, but in a country like Egypt, with no bankruptcy law, failure can mean a prison term if debts are not paid on time. But hope could be on the horizon in the form of competitive forces. As the region's economies struggle, there is pressure on governments to improve their handling of startups and to keep up with each other. And talking of difficult things to get a handle on, getting to grips with America's healthcare industry has proved a nightmare. But in our Money Talks podcast, we explored why current spending is so high there, particularly at the end of life. Our guest was Amy Finkelstein, Professor of Economics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Here she explains that the phenomenon isn't just confined to humans. So we found another industry which like the U.S. healthcare industry, has high and rising spending and high end-of-life spending. It's not human healthcare, it's pet healthcare. Pet healthcare spending has also been growing much more rapidly than the, the rest of the economy over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. And if your interest in that has spiked too, why not listen to our Money Talks podcast? It's available every Tuesday. From treatment of the elderly, we segue to care of the young, moving on to our business section. Any busy parent will know that shipping children around to places on time is no mean feat, and alas, the very young can't drive themselves. Could a clutch of new startups lend a hand, please? Helicopter parent may sound like an insult, but given the chance, most parents would probably opt for the help of a chopper to zoom little ones between school, football practice and piano lessons. Sadly, my personal helicopter is broken, which has made things a bit tricky at home recently. Hailing rides through firms like Uber and Lyft has made life more convenient for adults. But drivers are not supposed to pick up unaccompanied minors. Lo and behold, a business niche is born. Ride hailing for kids could be a market worth at least $50 billion in America hopes Ritu Narayan, the founder of Zoom, one of the startups pursuing the prize. These services are similar to Uber's, except they allow parents to schedule rides for their children in advance. 
A laudable idea, but such firms may struggle to reach maturity, we argued, as they face several challenges. One is finding enough drivers. All users need rides during the same limited set of hours, before and after school, which makes it hard to offer drivers enough work. It can also be challenging to lure parents who have drilled it into children never to get into a stranger's car. A new lesson may now need to be added to that tenet of childhood upbringing. Don't speak to the artificially intelligent home assistant without supervision. As computers' language skills have evolved, many are now helping us around our homes, as we explored on the Economist Science and Technology podcast, Babbage. As our deputy editor Tom Standage explained, that brings unprecedented risks. There was this recent example where a young girl asked an Amazon Echo device for a doll's house and it it duly ordered her one and this was reported as a, a scandalous thing on the news, but the news report repeated the command which caused lots of people whose TVs were tuned in to uh, order doll's houses. So uh, having heard about this, I've turned the default automatic purchasing options off on mine because we have children who come round to our house and like playing with this lovely toy and we don't want them to start ordering doll's houses or yachts. The haviots are getting younger, Tom. For our final taste of this week's coverage, we head over to our letters section where everything you say is picked up loud and clear. A previous reader's letter had proposed a collective noun for economists, and this theme has unsurprisingly proved rather popular. This week we had correspondents from all over the world with suggestions following a worrying trend. Further to the letter of Michael Bengad, December 17th, I think the appropriate collective noun for economists should be a quandary, explained one reader, a sentiment echoed in the proposal from another. Given the conflicting opinions between economists, I propose a befuddlement. And as if being confused wasn't enough, one reader thinks that supply is rather outstripping demand. The optimum choice must surely be a surplus of economists. But not here, oh never. I'm Anne McElvoy, and my invisible hand is turning off the recorder now. That's all for this week's Tasting Menu. Don't forget you can read all of our articles in this week's issue or on our website. And do keep sending us your feedback by email to radioeconomist.com or by reviewing our podcasts. In London, this is The Economist. 